You guys thankful for a time of worship like that? And we are blessed every week with an amazing opportunity to, uh, to gather like this and to sing and to pour our hearts out and uh, to remind ourselves that God is on the throne and we are not. That's why those of us that are followers of Christ, why we come together to worship is, although we like to take the throne back throughout the week and think we're in charge and think we're living life in control, we come here to surrender and say, God, you are Lord, you are in charge, and we submit and uh, we ask for your guidance, and that's what worship does for us each and every week, and uh, we thank the band for, for guiding us in that time. Reading out of Mark, very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they came to the tomb. And on the way, they were discussing who would roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb. But when they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, a very large one, had been rolled away. So they entered the tomb. And there on the right sat a young man clothed in a white robe. The women were startled. But the angel said, Do not be so surprised. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He isn't here. He has been raised from the dead. That's Easter right there. That's it. That's the Easter story. That's why we gathered. That's what's so powerful. You know what? This is the greatest comeback ever. Do you believe that? This is the greatest comeback ever. Now, how many of you love a good comeback story? All right? Who doesn't love a good comeback story? A good movie that has a comeback story? You know, Rocky Balboa, Rocky IV. You know, he's going up, Ivan Drago, Russian. I just remember that was one of my first kind of big movies that I was pumped up about. And he comes back and he defeats the Russian. What about sports? You guys like sports comebacks? I know it's March Madness. I'm not a huge basketball fan. I mean, I like it. And I know spring uh, is, come, is here and baseball starting, but I don't care that much for baseball, although I don't mind it. But I love NFL football. Anyone else? All right, so how about, a, how about a comeback from NFL? NFL football? Yeah? Let's do a vote. How many of you for NFL football comeback story? Okay, you win. All right, because I don't have another one. So um, it's a 2003. It's a Monday night football game. And, you know, I was, I'm from Indiana. That's where I was before uh, moving here. And... We love our Colts out in Indiana, and we love our Peyton Manning still. Anyone? All right. I know he's not there anymore. But in 2003, Peyton Manning was with the Colts. You know, and to- Coach Tony J- Dungy was leading the Colts, and it was this, this uh, quarterback-wide receiver duo of, of uh, Peyton and Manning and Marvin Harrison, right? I mean, they were like the top offense at the time, one of the top. And this Monday night was pitted to be a huge game because Coach Tony Dungy was playing his former team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And uh, they had just won, the year before without him, they had just won the Super Bowl. So we've got the defending Super Bowl champs, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, number one defense in the league, going up against the number one offense on a Monday night. This was a huge game. And I remember people talking about it. I remember people, you know, on the East Coast, you have to stay up late to watch the Monday night game. You know, they go really late. And so everybody was up watching it. Supposed to be this big game. The game starts, and Tampa Bay comes out, and it's 21 unanswered points early in the game. I mean, they're blowing out the Colts. The second half, it's not looking any better. They're still down. And as a matter of fact, they're down 35 to 14 with five minutes left in the game. All right, just if you're a football fan, and even if you're not, that's, that's, almost, that's unheard of, to come back in five minutes, to come back three touchdowns. I mean, touchdowns, complete everything, extra point. You've got to get the whole way there. Five minutes left. The announcers are saying... This one's in the books, you know, the Colts go down in defeat, and Tampa Bay is obviously the better team, but don't count them out, because they got Peyton Manning and Marvin Harrison, he drives them down the field, they score a touchdown. 
Right? They, I don't know, they do an onside kick at one point. They score another touchdown. Time is winding down. They get the ball back. They're driving down the field. With 35 seconds left on the clock, they score another touchdown. 21 points in less than five minutes. The score is 35-35 with 35 seconds left on the clock. All right? By this point, the stadium is already empty because people have turned off their TV. I remember the next morning, people in Indiana going, What? What happened in that game? I went to bed. We were down 21 you know, points. It goes into overtime, and it comes down to a field goal from Mike Vanderjack, who was, one of the, um, who was, who was the number one kicker at the time. I mean, the guy was Mr. Didn't Miss in that, during that time. He steps up to kick a field goal that he should have been able to hit any other time, and he kicks it, and it drifts wide right. But wait! There was a whistle for this call that we all know is the leaping call. I bet you've never heard of it. I have never heard of it. You can look it up when you get home, or I guess you might be even Googling it now. Anyway, don't do that. It's, it's a leaping call, and so he gets another shot. Surely Mike Vanderjack cannot miss this gimme field goal to win this unbelievable game. He steps up to kick it. It gets deflected. It's wobbling towards the uprights, and it hits the upright. Exactly. This is exactly what everybody was feeling. And it goes in between the uprights. Touchdown, Colts, Colts win. Come on, even if you're not a Colts fan, that is an amazing comeback. And uh, we love comeback stories because they remind us that there's hope. They remind us that there's possibilities, that, there, that there's a way through. And so we get inspired by that, and we love hearing stories like that, or a story out of politics like Nelson Mandela, who spends years and years in prison for what he believed in and the rights he fought for. But he doesn't come out bitter. He comes out and he restores a nation and a people. Comeback stories are awesome. Did you know One Community Church? We're a part of a comeback story right now. If you were with us over the past year, you look out here this morning and you go, this is a comeback story that we are a part of. Because God's doing something. And when God is moving and when you think you're down and out or things are getting rough and God begins to move and and things change, And we all love to be part of comeback stories because it means God is working and something is happening. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about comeback stories because there is no question, as I said earlier, that there is no greater comeback story than the story of Jesus Christ coming back from the dead. Amen. When you think about Christ, and and, you know, sometimes we just start at Easter. And we've been saying this in our church leading up here to Easter is, You can't fully appreciate Easter unless you've walked through Good Friday. Unless you've really taken the time to reflect on what Jesus Christ did on what we call Good Friday, which in that day was nothing good. Jesus Christ died. But what led up to that in that moment was was this, this, this separation of everyone from Jesus. The crowds began to abandon him. Those same crowds that cried, Hallelujah, Hosanna on Palm Sunday and welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. A week later, we're yelling, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! So the crowds abandoned him. But he had his disciples. Of course, they were going to stick with him, but even one of his closest twelve, Judas, betrays him with a kiss. He turns him over to the authorities. But at least he had his closest three disciples, James and John and Peter. Peter! He had them, right? They couldn't even stay awake when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And Jesus said, man, my soul is crushed and in anguish. Will you stay awake with me and pray and support me? And he came back and they were sleeping. They couldn't even hang with him. And then when, when, the, when the, the mob came to take Jesus away, there comes Judas. 
He betrays him with a kiss. Jesus is arrested. And you know what it says in scriptures that happened to all the disciples? They scattered. Unlike, 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 unfriend, 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 unfriend. All right? To put it in our social context. All right? Unfriending all the way. But there was Peter. There was Peter, right? Peter! His closest man, the guy that was going to draw a sword. We all want a Peter in our corner that goes to bat for us, that, you know, acts first and thinks later, right? And anyone here like that? This was Peter, and he said, I'm never going to leave you. But Peter had, Jesus had already told him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And so he's watching Jesus at a distance as Jesus is on trial, and he's being falsely accused, and, 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 and he's just being just run through the ringer, and Peter's at a distance watching, but not once, not twice. Three times he says, he says in front of the stranger, he says, I, I don't know that man. I don't know him. He denied him. And so here is Jesus completely, utterly alone. Did you know you can't have a great comeback story if you don't have a good knockdown first? That should give some of you hope right now. All right, you guys are writing a great comeback story, but you're just in that chapter of the knockdown. You know what I'm talking about? That's the good part about comeback stories is you got to see where people came from and, what, and where they were and what was it possible. And Jesus, you couldn't have gone further down the road because once he was handed over, he was whipped and beaten. He was mocked and scorned. He was made fun of. We've seen the gruesome images on the video earlier. And if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you know how bloody and painful and horrible that death was. But not just the physical part. I mean, if you've ever cared for somebody emotionally, you know that sometimes you don't carry just a physical pain for somebody. You carry an emotional weight. If you've ever cared for somebody spiritually or some of you moms and dads who are praying for a wayward son or daughter, or some of you spouses who are praying for a husband who's, who's far from Christ and you're saying, God, speak, you understand there is an emotional, spiritual weight. Now multiply that by millions and billions of people. Not just at the time, but throughout history, Jesus was carrying that weight as well, and he was carrying it alone. And while he's hanging on that cross, he begins to breathe his last and says, it is finished. They take him off the cross. They stick him in a hole in a cave and roll the stone in front. End of story. And that's what the disciples thought. And that's what the crowds thought. And even on Saturday, you know, some of us, we talk about being on a Friday, right? Where it's like the stone's been rolled in front. You guys are sitting in the tomb. It's dark. There's no hope left. There's nothing there. The good news is there's a Saturday coming. The only good thing about a Saturday is that it's one day closer to Sunday. (laughs) There's nothing good about Saturday either in terms of the story because Saturday is that long, dark period where you go, what just happened? And is there ever going to be an end to this? It's that darkness that some of you know after some, a loved one has died. After you've lost something significant, maybe a relationship and a marriage has been broken. Maybe you've lost a job or a house. Maybe someone close to you again is, is struggling with a disease or an addiction or, or challenged in some ways. And maybe you're wrestling with your own darkness. And it's this uncomfortable waiting period. And Jesus is just there in the tomb. It just seems nothing is happening. But I believe on that Saturday... God was doing battle. (laughs) And I believe Jesus was doing battle because it was a battle to overcome humanity's ultimate trump card. You know what that is? Death. Right? No matter what happens, death's going to get us. 
No matter how good things are, no matter how wealthy you are, how much love you had, how much pleasure, how much joy, how much fun, how much fulfillment, death is going to get you. So live it up, live large, but you're still a victim to death. Death is the ultimate trump card for humanity. But on that Sunday, on that Sunday morning, when the ladies came and they looked at that tomb and they saw that it was empty, Jesus Christ conquered death. I mean, we have a hard time fathoming, fathoming that. But see, what I want to talk about today is not just this comeback from Jesus. I want to talk about your comeback. And I want to look at the disciples because when they all unfriended Jesus and all abandoned him and betrayed him, why did they start refriending him? Why did they come back? Why did they come back to Jesus? What was the drawing power? Well, for one, he's alive. <laughs> they saw him alive. And if you saw Jesus alive, you would say, I'm sticking with this guy. <laughs> I mean, this guy overcame the grave, and the men who were fearful, the men who locked themselves away, and the women who hid in homes and said, we're afraid for our own life because this thing has gone sour really quick following Jesus, those same people became bold. They became powerful. They became people who were outspoken about the love of Christ and were sharing it broadly and saying, I don't care what you can do to me. Kill me. You can't. Because I'm living forever. You know when my eternity started? Not after I die. It started the day that I became a follower of Christ. The day Jesus rose from the dead and I came back to Christ, my eternity began. You can't kill me. You may take away my physical life, but you have no more power over me. When you no longer fear death, imagine how great you can live. Some of the reason some of us aren't living is because we're so afraid. We're afraid of losing. We're afraid of loss. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of making a mistake. We're afraid of things going wrong. But man, if you are not afraid anymore, come on, bring it. You can't take me. So what? You kill me. I don't lose. I get to be with Jesus in heaven for eternity. My life is, is fine. I'm, I'm comfortable. And you know what that does? It's not just about waiting to die. It frees me to live. But see, you can't have that kind of comeback if you're trying to get there on your own without Christ. And see, that's the thing. I believe all of us are trying to work out our own comeback story. I think that's what, what's behind everything that we do in life. Meaning, like, the reason we try to excel at work and become so successful or get a promotion and move forward, we're, we're trying to redeem ourselves. We're trying to redeem our sense of worthlessness. We're trying to redeem our sense that we're not good enough. We're trying to make up for our father who never thought we were good enough or a mother who thought we wouldn't amount to anything or a spouse who doesn't think we can do enough or our brother who outperformed us. Anyone? We're trying to redeem ourselves. And so we're trying to pursue that. Or we're trying to make up for trying to be better and better people, trying to be a better husband, trying to be a better spouse, trying to be a better father. We're trying to redeem ourselves. Now, it's not bad to try to be a better person. But you know what? You're not good enough. That's the Easter message for you this morning. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Woo! Came to church and they told me I'm not good enough. Not only are you not good enough, you never will be. You never will be. Think about this, parents. Will your children ever behave well enough to deserve your full love through action? If it was all through their deeds, like doing good, being perfect, would, would, would they ever arrive? If you told your kids, if you live, when you stop making mistakes, when you stop, you know, arguing and fighting, when you stop screwing up, whatever, when you can stop doing that, then I will consider you my son or daughter. Then you will be good enough. Would they ever be your children? Never. 
I mean, I think our house is, an, is a giant. I mean, I think on Google Maps, if you look, there's a little big arrow on there, and it says timeout zone, all right, at our, at our address. With four girls, you know, seven, six, four, and two, and we know girls all get along really well together and sisters. Um, there's always one in timeout somewhere. We have so many timeout spots around the house. It's just wonderful. And, and, and so we're never good enough. If it's about our action, it's ne- we're never good enough. There's a verse in Romans 3.23, if you don't mind throwing that up. Romans 3.23, it says this, For all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard. Who does? How many? You know, I don't like this turn to your neighbor stuff, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're in church, but this one's kind of fun. I want you in your best Dana Carvey church lady voice, right? This is for all you folks who remember the day back in the 90s. And I want you to turn to the person next to you and go, Sinner. <laughs> You don't really have to do that, but that's fine. <laughs> that's the thing. We're, the reason we're here is we're sinners. The same reason our kids are sinners. They're constantly sinning. They're constantly screwing up. We're God's children. We are sinners. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. But we're constantly trying to work out our own comeback. And here's the thing, folks. We can't. Jesus was very clear about this. When he came, he said, you can't be good enough to be right with God. And, and for some of us, that makes us feel like, well, great, why even try? But here's what Jesus said, look, it's not just about the physical things you do, right? I mean, for example, he's just saying, look, it's not just about physically sinning and committing adultery. I mean, that's sin, and, and that's going to separate you from God and a relationship with him. But you know what? I'll tell you what, if you think you're going to, if you even had a lustful thought towards another woman or a man, or, you've committed adultery. Guilty. If you, you know, it's not just you who are murderers. It's not just you who murder people who have committed sin. If you even have a hateful thought and you, th- you know, you, you, you think hateful thoughts towards your brother, you're, you're as guilty as a murderer. Death row, you know. It's, it's the end of the line. Guilty. Right? If you, um, it's, you know, the Ten Commandments, if you covet your neighbor's things. Right? It's not just about physically stealing them. Oh, I don't steal. But if you just covet you want something that somebody else has? Guilty, 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 guilty all the time. You know, it's constantly like, uh, we are guilty. And, and, and there's this, you could end here and walk away saying this is hopelessness, and that's exactly where everyone is. If your story with Christ stops at the tomb with a stone rolled in front, and you're going, he never grows again. I don't believe it. That's a bunch of garbage. It's, it's over. Well, good luck spending the rest of your life trying to redeem yourself. You know what happens to people who think they're good enough? And are constantly, there's this reasoning of rationale of, you know, at least I'm not as bad as, right? That becomes sort of the sliding scale, the bell curve of, you know, if I get into heaven. And actually, if you don't love God and don't care, why do you even want to go to heaven anyway? But if, you know, if you think heaven is about this eternity just being better than other people, you're not going to get there. Because what happens to folks and those of us who constantly try to do that, we try to become perfectionists. And being one and trying to be one, I know it's a, it's a never-ending pursuit. You don't get there. We become self-righteous. We become pious. We become religious folks. We become Pharisees. We think we're better than everybody else. We, begin, we become judgmental. All those things that Christ called us to become, right? <laughs> Just making sure you're still with me. Yes, amen. Oh. No, so you got to pay attention. I could trick you. Um, so it's not through those things at all. And Jesus says, look, you're never going to be good enough, but you need this five-letter word. You need grace. Without grace which means undeserved favor, which means you don't deserve it, which means when my daughter 
goes into the pantry, sneaks the cookies, and runs into the coat closet, shuts the door, sits in the corner, and I catch her with cookies in her mouth, right? A little two-year-old Anaya. She gets in trouble. She gets in punishment. But that's when afterward I say, come here. Why were you in timeout? She ate that cookie. Whatever she says. <laughs> cookies. And then I says, sorry, give me a hug. And we embrace, and she gives a hug, and we say, I love you. Does she deserve that? <laughs> it depends. Ah, trick questions. Ah. She deserves it if you think about a loving parent. I didn't say, you know what, go to the store. You've got to replace those cookies. You've got to prove to me that from now until you leave this house when you're 25, <laughs> you, do, you never eat another cookie. And then you will have shown me that you are worthy of the forgiveness I'm granting you. No. I forgive because I love my daughter and my grace says I will cover those cookies and eat them myself. All right? That's the love of a father towards his child. But, but see, here's another verse. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's why we need Christ and why we can't do it on our own. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I mean, this is, this is the story that God became a substitution for us. That he said, you know what? I know, you know, you guys deserve the sin, but I'm going to take the place of Mark Krenz for his covetingness, for his lustfulness, for his hatred, for his selfishness, for his pride, for his ego, for all those things that he thinks and does. I will step in. I'm taking the punishment. And before the Father, we are found blameless before our Heavenly Father. We are declared not guilty. And you know, I love this verse. Let's go to the next one here. This is, um, this is Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Now, I read Romans 3, 23 earlier, right? Which said, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. If that was the end of the book, that'd be pretty sad. But here's the very next verse from that previous one. Yet, even though we're all sinners, right? Yet, now God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. Though we are, he declares us not guilty. So how do we make our comeback? Well, Peter, there's a story, we read about it in, in the Gospels where Jesus is resurrected and one morning um, the men are back fishing. They went back to what they know and are kind of trying to figure out what's next. And it's early in the morning and they look, up, they look on the beach and there's a little fire you know, crackling on the beach and it's kind of drawing them in and they see a man there and as they come closer they realize it's Jesus. And as they get out of the boat and they come over and, and then Jesus says, hey, you know, what would you guys catch? You got some fish? Said, Bring them over here. We're going to have ourselves a little breakfast. I've never had fish for breakfast, but apparently it was good. Um, and so they're, they're there. And then, then Peter, Jesus says to Peter, remember, Peter denied him three times. I don't know you. I don't know you. And Peter, it's almost like, like Jesus was calling Peter out of timeout. <laughs> Peter, come here. Were you in timeout? All right, come here. And he said, Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I, I love you. Then, then, then feed my sheep. Peter's going, all right, can I go now? Uh, P- Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. See, he's drawing him back into relationship. This isn't about being good enough, about doing well enough, about having all our ducks in a row, about living perfect lives. It's about being in relationship with Christ and and loving Jesus Christ. Here's a key that I want you to take home with you today. You cannot have a comeback 
until you come back to Jesus Christ. You can't. You cannot have a comeback in any area of your life completely until you come back to Jesus Christ. Now, you may go look at, go, I'm not Peter, I'm not Judas, or you might go, guilty. I have betrayed Jesus. I've betrayed him for, before others. I've denied him. I, my lifestyle has shown that I don't care about Jesus. Maybe you were one of his followers. Maybe in your youth, maybe as a kid, you remember Sunday school and hearing those stories and it seemed so real, but, but then you became grown up and you knew better and you were enlightened and you heard about the ways of the world and you see how awesome our culture is. And you realize that must be the answer to life. That's where love is found, is in promiscuous relationships and in getting wasted and, and living large and spending a lot of money and, and just having the ultimate freedom and not being accountable to anyone. That's where life is at. I'm my own man. It's not life. <laughs> Amen. I don't even know where I was. I'm so fired up. But some of you, you know, you've drifted. You know, you drift through your years. Maybe you were active in church in high school. Maybe you, want, you were part of a youth group. Maybe you had a praying grandparent who, who would tell you about Christ or who, who you know, was, was very devout or a parent, but you've, you knew better. You found your own way. Or maybe it was just subtle and you didn't really intend to, but, you know, life got busy. You went off to college. Maybe you went and got a job. You got married and... I was just so busy with the kids, it's hard to get up on a Sunday morning and next week. And next week turns into next month, and next month turns into next year. But every Easter and every Christmas, you find your way back to church because maybe a spouse guilted you to come in. It's Easter, you're coming with me. You know, it's Christmas, twice a year you come. And you wonder why we only teach about Christmas and Easter. We have 50 other messages throughout the year that can really help your life, I promise. You know, maybe your comeback begins today. You came back. For whatever reason, you're coming back. But my heart, my prayer is that you would come back to Christ. You know, there's this beautiful story that Jesus tells. It's my favorite parable in the Bible. It's found in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus actually tells three stories. And this is where we get our name as a church. One. One has a lot of great significance and biblical significance, but really what, what really started us thinking about the name one were these three stories in Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells the story of a lost sheep. He talks about a shepherd who goes after the lost one. He leaves the 99 to go after the lost one, and when he finds it, he brings him back home. Jesus is looking for lost people. We are to be looking for the lost ones, and one reminds us of why we exist as a church. We exist for you, the one to bring you home, to come back to your Father. And he says, when that one comes back, there's more rejoicing in heaven over that one than over the 99 who never felt the need to repent. That's how much God cares about you coming back home and finding what was lost. Then he tells the story of a lost coin. And he says, if you have something valuable and there's this woman who searches high and low, sweeps the house, turns it upside down, looking for that lost coin, he says, that's what it's like when, when somebody who is lost, and that's how valuable somebody who is lost is to the kingdom. And when she finds that coin, she celebrates and she tells her friends. And that's what we are to do when somebody who is lost comes home to the Father. And then he tells, he saves the best story for last. The, the story of the lost son. The story of the lost son who leaves his father and says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. He betrayed him. He denied him. He walked away. He left his father. 
to live life and to live at large and to find out and try to work out his own redemption. But when he was in the pit, when he was in the mud and the mire, when he was eating pig's food, he thought about how good it was and how good it would be to be back home with his father. One of my favorite lines in that story says, and when he came to his senses. (laughs) Some of you aren't ready to come to your senses yet. I understand that. And I don't make fun of you in this sense. I, I think it's really a process. And this may seem senseless to you. And the Bible says that the things of God are foolishness to those who don't believe. And so until our heart is ready, it's going to seem like foolishness. But the son realized this is ridiculous. And I, I could have a back so good with my father. And so he begins to rehearse the speech. And he's thinking, all right, here's the speech I'm going to say. And if you, you've ever been there as a teenager, you know, you come home after curfew or I've been caught out late. And I'm like, I remember one time I was late. I took my watch off, you know, and I stuck it in my pocket. I'm like, I didn't know what time it was, Dad. Uh, like, that's going to fly, you know what I mean? We, we rehearse, and we're trying to find a way to get back home, and, and so he's rehearsing what he's going to do and but how he's going to apologize. And He says, I don't, I don't even want to be your son. I'll, I'll just be willing just to be your servant. That, that'll be great. That'll be good enough. And so you can imagine him coming home, and he's walking, and he's rehearsing it, and he sees his house in the distance. And you know where his father was? He was there waiting for him. But he wasn't waiting for him like this. About time. About time you came home. Oh, there he is. Oh, yeah. He's going to get what's coming to him. That's how we would write the story. Okay? This father, and Middle Eastern fathers don't do this, if you've ever been there. He booked it off the porch and starts running towards his son. And when he's running to him, he gets ready to embrace him, and the son busts out his best speech. Father, I know I'm not worthy to be your son. And what does the father say? Shh. I, and I just want, if you, I could just be a servant and a slave in your house, that'll be fine. I just, get the ring. The ring, the family ring, the one that will bestow honor on you. Slip it on his finger and you are my son. Do you understand? And we're going to get a robe and we're going to put it around you. We're going to put sandals on your feet. You are my son and we're going to throw a party because you were gone and now you are home. And this parable ends here with Luke chapter 15, verse 32. And here's Jesus telling the story as the father speaking. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother. And he's speaking to his brother. Your brother was dead and has what? He's come back. He's come back, not just to him, he's come back to life. Resurrection, people. Not just Christ's, but yours. He was lost, but now he is found. The band's going to come and lead us in a song. And during the song, I just want you to sit. And I want you to ask yourself, do you need to come back? Where have you drifted? Where have you strayed? Where have you betrayed? Where have you abandoned and denied? And to know that you come into the arms of a loving father who says, your act of coming back and submitting your heart is your expression of faith and acceptance of my grace and favor. Take this time, reflect on these words, do business with God. You can't come back unless you come back to Jesus Christ. I have a feeling it's time for some of you today, right now, to come back. It's time. You've been running too long, trying to redeem your own life. It's time to come home. Just bow your heads in prayer.
You don't have to rehearse a long speech for your Heavenly Father. He's listening to your heart. And He knows if it's your desire. Say, God, Father, forgive me. I just want to be restored again. I want to be your son, your daughter. And He says, it's already done. I would just like to be able to pray with you. And if this morning you feel God is really calling you home, to come back home, would you just raise your hand and just acknowledge that beforehand this morning? Raise it high, man. Be proud. This is God calling you home, saying, God, I acknowledge that. Absolutely, I see your hands, guys. Let me just be praying for you. Heavenly Father, we know what a great homecoming is when we think about times of the year when we've been gone or maybe seeing friends and relatives and Father, there's no greater homecoming than with you. and We want to come back into your presence, back into relationship. And Father, I thank you for those here this morning whose hearts and spirits are just acknowledging, God, it's time to stop fighting and to just fall into your arms and to begin this journey with you in a fresh way, a clean slate, forgiveness in hand. Thank you, Father, for wiping the slate of death clean that we no longer have to fear. But God, that we can walk new, restored lives. Father, what a day of celebration. What a day of resurrection, Easter 2013. A day of new life for all of us, God, because you live. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we praise you. Together we say, amen.